Just don't get out to read the Word of God in the New Testament in the Epistle to Hebrews and chapter 10, and we're going to read at verse number 19. Hebrews 10, at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we are a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with that true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had, you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. This is God's word. Trust that we bless to us that reading from it. Now we turn to sing to God's praises down in Psalm 101 in the Scottish Psalter on page 132. Psalm 101 on page 132. I'll praise your love and justice, Lord. I'll praise you cheerfully. I'll strive to lead a blameless life. When will you come to me? From verse 1 to verse mark 6 to God's praise. I'll praise your love i 
to the right to the Hebrews and chapter 10 and we can read at verse number 22 Hebrews chapter 10 and at verse 22 let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water and so on down to the end of Verse 25. When we read this letter, we realise that the letter is written to a community in crisis. And we can have a crisis for different reasons. We could say in our own day that we have a crisis in our economy. We have a, a crisis that is spiritual. We have a crisis in our communities there is an energy crisis. There are so many different ways in which in our community and in the wider community we are faced with different kinds of crises. When we read this letter, we come, of course, to think of a crisis that has to do with faith, that has to do with church, and that has to do with our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we read through the letter, we recognize the ways in which this community were losing interest in the gospel. They were disheartened and discouraged by what they encountered, and they were growing weary and ready to give up on their faith. They were a community in crisis. And the letter was written in order, first of all, to draw their attention to the importance and the centrality of Jesus Christ. There is no other answer to a spiritual crisis but to be refocused wholeheartedly on the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And the writer does that expertly from the beginning of chapter 5 
down to verse 18 in this chapter, his passion and his work. When we come to this stage in the lecture, it is a transition point because the reality is that we must learn about the Lord Jesus so that we can live for the Lord Jesus. And the transition is such that it brings us face to face with what is now required by us on the basis of what Christ has done. And verses number 19 down to 21 places the three things that he is going to ask them to do in the context of all that Jesus has done. And today I want us to think of the three things that the writer wants them to do to reflect their appreciation of the gospel and to show that in their faith they are serious in their commitment to the Lord Jesus. And in that sense, I want us to look at personal priorities and mutual responsibilities. We are here on our own, but we are in this together. First of all, we want to notice from the first exhortation a personal response. In verse 22, let us draw near. The words may on the surface seem a bit vague and seem a bit strange. Let us draw near. Draw near to what? Draw near to whom? Let us draw near. The letter is written against the background of a people who understand the Old Testament. And when Old Testament people hear the words, let us draw near, the first thing that springs to mind is the worship of God at the tabernacle and at the temple. The priests drew near to the temple, the tabernacle of God, to keep the charge of the sanctuary. They were there to serve God and to minister to God. And we can read passages like Ezekiel chapter 45, which shows to us the ways in which the Lord expects the people to serve through the peace priest at the tabernacle and do so approaching God, approaching the table of the Lord, and there being in the presence of God. And the writer takes all of these ideas transfers them into the experience of this people. And when we read, for example, chapter number 7, we see the way in which that Jesus is able to save all those who draw near to God through him. And later on in in chapter 11, when he speaks about faith, who would draw near to God must believe that is drawing near to God, is drawing near to God in the worship of God. And of course we were not going to come as the people of God and the priesthood in the Old Testament into the sanctuary of God and to serve at the tabernacle. But today a response to the gospel, let us draw near the command, the exhortation is that in the light of what Jesus has done, that you and I should draw near to God in the worship of God. And it is clear that we are going to do that on the basis of what he has done. In chapter number four, we're, we're called upon to 
come with confidence to the throne of grace, to draw near to God, that we may receive grace. And we are coming because we have Jesus as our high priest. The only basis on which we can come is on the fact that Jesus has died for our sins. He sits at the right hand of God. And on that, we can come, we should come, and we must come in order to worship God. And when we think of of worshipping God, it is a step beyond the physical aspect of gathering together within any kind of building. It's beautiful to see people gathering together physically in the house of God to worship God. But this is the step that takes us from the physical to the spiritual aspect of engaging with God and coming with all of our praise, with all of our confession, with all of our adoration of God, with coming into the presence of God with hearts that are filled with a sense of thankfulness to God for what he has done in Christ, what he has done in creation and his purposes for humankind through the passion of his Son. What is your response today? The years run along with us and our capacity to have knowledge of the Lord Jesus, our, our memory store of all that Jesus has done continues to expand. But regardless of that, if that's all that we have gained from the years that have gone by, then we are in the place where we have missed the point and we have lost what our response should be. That your memory store today, which is full of your understanding of what God has done and what Jesus has done, is the launching pad to set you into the presence of God and into the worship of God. And you will know in your heart at this very moment in time if you have come from the physical and moved into the spiritual aspect of giving your heart to God with that kind of worship. That your knowledge of the Lord Jesus is your inspiration, your motivation, and and leaves you with no other choice in the sense that this is what you want to do more than anything else is to come into the presence of God and to worship God. And of course, we have to come in a particular way. There are conditions attached to your response and mine to the gospel. Conditions attached to the way in which we come to worship God. We are to come with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with water. And the conditions are twofold. There is, first of all, the condition that, that lays responsibility on you, that you have to come with a true heart. That is a sincere heart, not a heart with divided loyalties, not a heart that is 
split between your loyalty to other things and to other people and to other gods that you may have in your life, God's inverted commas. But a heart that is fully sincere and coming with the full assurance of faith. That is, that you take the knowledge that you have of what God has done in Christ, that you take it from the Word of God, and that you accept it and believe it as what it truly is, and with your vessel container of assurance filled up to the very brim, because that's what God's Word demands, that's what it requires, and that's a sincere response to it. If that's what it says, I believe it 100%. And because I believe it 100%, I come into the worship of God. And there is no 50-50 split or any other kind of split. It's coming in to the presence of God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. That is your responsibility. It's the human aspect of the worship that you're going to given the presence of God. Nothing less than that will do. This is the standard. This is what God requires. And you may, and you should surely ask yourself, if this is the standard, where am I on the scale? And in many ways, there is, there is no scale. I'm either here or I'm not. And to ask yourself, is that where I'm at today? Or am I somewhere far distant from it? Your response and your responsibility. And I, I hear in my own mind and I hear the objection coming from the heart that is unbelieving. The objection coming that, yes, but I cannot do that. Yes, but I'm not able to do what God requires and that's why the second condition is about what God does. And what God does, he, he sprinkles your heart clean from an evil conscience and your body is washed from, with pure water. That means that, that God cleanses away your sinful heart from its guilt. The conscience that suits us judge over our actions. It's that etern internal mechanism in our minds that judges all of our actions and that will either excuse us or accuse us, approve or disapprove. It's where the rubber hits the road in a relationship with God and where we understand right and wrong. And the evil conscience is the conscience that is filled with guilt the guilt that only God can take away and the guilt that he will take away with the blood of Jesus which the writer describes and says without the shedding of the blood of Jesus there is no forgiveness of sin. And so the, the parallel condition and the underlying condition in your response to, to the claims of the gospel is that, that God comes and forgives you because of the death of Jesus. 
and that as Moses sprinkled the blood on the people in Exodus 19 to show the new covenant with God, so God takes the blood of the new covenant, the blood of Jesus dying on the cross, establishing that covenant. He takes that blood, he sprinkles, 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 me, he sprinkles the blood on you. And in that sprinkling, there is the remover of guilt. There is the peace of forgiveness, the calm in the presence of God, the crisis, the conflict, everything is restored to order. And you come in with that heart that is filled with the peace of God. And he goes on to speak of bodies washed with pure water, which speaks about the way in which, if we can go back to the image of the tree, we are taken from, from being planted in the place of death and judgment and taken and set apart for God's service as they would come to the temple and to the tabernacle as the, the people of God consecrated to his service. So we now as the children of God are set apart for him. The response, the personal response. You must worship God. You must take responsibility for the knowledge that you possess of what God has done. And you must trust in the grace of God, which alone enables you to take part and to worship in the way that God requires of you. And once you passionately do that, and once we all do that together, then uh, the spiritual crisis is over. And there may be other crises further on in life, but this main stumbling block, the crisis of being without the saving knowledge of Christ, will be behind you. The passionate responsibility. Secondly, following on from that and connected to that, there must be a personal resolve. Jesus speaks about those who put their hands to the plough and turn back from it are not fit for the kingdom of God. It's so easy to start well, but it's much more difficult to finish well. And Whatever area in life we look at, we see a lot of people starting well. And before long, they vanish out of sight. But there will be those, and they will finish well. And they will do so because they go forward despite what confronts them. And it is that kind of pressure, and these kind of people, that the writer wants them to be in verse number 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. There is the holding fast of something, holding something tightly. We can hold something quite loosely, it slips through our hands. If something is really precious to us, we will hang on to it very tightly. And no one dare try and 
take that out of our hands. And that's the image that the writer has here. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession which is saying the same thing as our hope says. So there is the confession that's saying the same thing as the hope of the gospel. And when we look at hope in, in, in this in this lecture, what we see is that hope is looking to what comes at the end. In the race, it's the prize. In the journey of faith, it is that hope of glory. It is confidence to enter into the holy place into which Jesus has entered. And we see earlier on in the letter the way in which hope goes in behind the curtain like an anchor into the place where Jesus has gone. It's the confidence of that hope of everlasting glory. It's holding fast to that. And there is so much that will meet with us in our everyday lives, as has done so in the past. So much that will seek to, to dampen our hope and to keep our vision from looking beyond where we are. For our heads to go down and to lose sight of the direction that God has given to us. These are the things that we have to face and face them not wavering as the people here were. They had that deficiency in life which reflects the way in which they weren't wholeheartedly committed to their faith in Christ and because of that they were in danger of falling away. And you and I have to think seriously about that. About resolve going into this new year. About the resolve that will mean that what we are doing now that is honouring to God is what we will continue to do. Because tomorrow there will be every challenge against what you continue to do that is pleasing to God. Later today itself, you will be faced with the same temptation. There's something that we constantly encounter. Something that wants to knock us off our course and lose sight of the haven, as the psalmist describes it in Psalm 107, losing sight of the haven where the storms will be changed into a calm. Holding fast without wavering. And such is the nature of, of human experience. I doubt if there is anyone who has embarked on the journey of faith who has not at some point wavered because sometimes the storm can be fierce. Sometimes the affliction can be painful. Sometimes the trial of faith seems beyond what we can endure. But that's where our faith will prove itself. That's where we need resolve to drive through the hard times and at last to reach to the glory. The resolve 
do not waver. How often do we see that in Christ's church? Those who waver in their faith, those who lack personal commitment, those who allow other things to take up so much of life and of their attention, that they start tottering on the edge and ultimately slip and fall away. And why should we hold fast our confession? Because of the character of the God who has promised. I wouldn't blame you if you didn't trust a promise I made because, like everyone else, I have a sinful heart. And very often the best promises are the places where we fail most because we have the desire in our hearts to do something, but finding a way of doing it so often is so hard that we give up. But God is not like that. He who promised is faithful. The great promiser, capital letters, whose name is the great promiser, he is faithful. Read the end of chapter 6 and see the way in which the writer was was keen for for them to, to lay hold of God with the assurance that God would fulfill what he has promised. God deciding to give to the heirs of salvation the assurance of his commitment to, to his purposes. He couldn't swear on anyone else, so he, he has sworn upon himself. So that with that swearing upon himself and the sacrifice that was given, that these two things together show that the God concerning whom it is true that it is impossible for him to lie, that we may have that conviction, the resolve. This is not your word, it's not my word, it's not your promise, it's not my promise. This is the promise of the living God who is committed who has the power, the purpose, and all of these promises are set out in his plan for you. And we go forward to experience these promises because we know that no matter how great the crisis, greater is our God, greater is the power of the promise, and greater is the help that we will receive from him. The personal response, the personal resolve, and thirdly, the community resolution. We are in this together. They were in it together. And he wants the community to recognize their responsibility to each other. And unless a community recognizes that, it will not function as a community. It's at the very essence of what community means. In verse number 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. 
let's take our minds and think seriously about this matter. Let's consider it. It's all of the energy of our thinking. It's having our inner senses directed towards what the writer has for us here. So that this will be at the very centre of our meditation, of our own reflection. And so that we will immerse ourselves in this one thing. And the one thing is to stir up one another to love and to good works. We can stir somebody up to be angry. We see that in the Bible. We see at different times the ways in which the apostles, Moses himself, stirred up to anger and perhaps in some ways God himself is stirred up by the sins of his people. But there is a positive side to, to stirring what we are moving oppression to stimulate them to do something that's really good. And we are doing so out of our concern for their well-being and so that they will participate in that good towards which we want to stimulate them. And what we have here is to stir one another to love and to good works. The love that is at the centre of the gospel, the love with which Jesus loved his disciples, the love with which he wanted them to love one another, the love with which he wanted them to show to the world that they were his disciples, to press the, the button in each other's lives and hearts that would kickstart the love of God into action. And as we read the Bible, the love of God that is powerful, that is life-transforming, that is world-transforming, that is relationship-transforming, the love that realigns everything with the purposes and with the plan of God and with the love of God himself. And all of that realignment is done through good works. The works that reflect what the kingdom of God is and means. The works that reflect a faith that is committed to the Lord Jesus. A faith that is persuaded of all that the Bible requires. The good works that knit together this whole community of faith. And today, if our urgent need is to respond to the gospel personally, there is an equal urgency with regard to this community resolution that we take all of our personal energy which we put into a relationship with God, that we take it and use it also for our relationships with each other. And when we do that, then things will begin to work in the way in which God has designed them to work. We have heard the illustration often in the past, at least the, the older generation will have at least with regard to the coals in the fire. The fire is beginning to go out. The coals are scattered. There's no sign of, 
of a flame. So somebody comes to, to stir up the coals, to, to gather them together, and to, to blow, to cause air to flow through them, so that the fire is rekindled, and it begins to burn, and then it can be stoked up to become once more the blaze that, that transmits the warmth and the heat, as well as some light. And that's something like we can do for each other. And so often your heart will be cold and so often my heart will be cold and so often you will need me and I will need you and we will need each other to rekindle that fire and to bind and to bond together the people of God. And what is one of the necessities that drives that community resolution that, uh, that provides the fuel for that, for that activity. It is the public worship of God. Stir up one another, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Not neglecting to meet together. Not abandoning the public worship of God. They were clearly beginning to do that here. The very thing that was going to give them strength, the very place where fellowship was going to be strengthened and restored, the very place where they were to learn together of the teaching of the person of Jesus and the work of God's grace, that very place they started to neglect and came to abandon. And in that sense, it became a habit. It became a new tradition. And that's where, where so often we, we can see church life and community life. Traditions which are always living and active. And because of that, traditions change. And the tradition that can change, and that perhaps has changed, is the tradition of gathering together in the public worship of God. And we can create a new tradition of not gathering together in the public worship of God which will change the face of our community and any other community. And we can slowly change what has been valuable and treasured and so beneficial. We can change that by creating new habits. And today, for you and for me, we are called upon by the Word of God to ensure that we are not tradition changers, but that we are tradition restorers in the sense that we ourselves are going to be committed to the public worship of God and that we are going to stir up those who are around us to fan their flame so that they will join with us once more in the public worship of God. A community resolution. Let's note the call for a personal response. 
It's a matter of urgency. Let's note the need to that personal resolve and let's note this community resolution because there is a day drawing near, the day of Christ's return, when time, as we know it, will come to an end and where opportunities will be gone. The matter is urgent. Personal priorities and mutual responsibilities. May God help us to hear his word and to put it into practice for his glory and for our collective good. May God bless his word. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we bow before you, the Lord of God, and ask you to be our help. We know what you require of us. We know that we cannot do it ourselves, but we know that you can give to us the help of your spirit so that we do the things that you command us to do and so that we find joy in uh, living a life of obedience in your presence. So bless your word to us, we pray, and hear us, we ask, for Jesus' sake. Amen. The closing psalm is Psalm number 48 in the Scottish Psalter. It's on page 273 of the psalm book, and we are singing at verse number 10. Psalm 48 at verse 10, to the end of the psalm. O Lord, according to thy name, through all the earth thy praise, and thy right hand, O Lord, is full of righteousness always. To the end of the psalm, to God's praise. No, Lord, according to
stand for the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen. <laughs>